Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a new contributor to Young Voices to the show. His name is Peter Van Wingerden. And Peter, as a, as a Young Voices contributor already, we know you've got something going for you. But take a moment here and tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. Well, Brian, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm a senior at Claremont McKenna College in beautiful Southern California. I study government and Asian studies. Um, but as an American who grew up abroad, you know, my view of what it means to be an American has always been shaped by our engagement abroad. I spent eight years in Hong Kong being there when the protests took place, being there when the umbrella movement took place in 2014, the implementation of the national security law, uh, that just you know woke me up to, to maybe wanting to look at these issues uh, uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. So that's what I'm studying here at college and, and hopefully I'll have an opportunity to continue uh, studying and working on those issues uh, when I finish college, hopefully in, in the next couple of months. Well, I guess this is why you would be uniquely qualified to comment on things like Taiwan's election last month and uh, I'm looking at your, your article from internationalpolicydigest.org, How Taiwan Ignored China and Became a Model Democracy. Now, I'll admit, my attention has been elsewhere other than what's been going on in Taiwan. Can you kind of walk us through what this election was about and, and what uh, the results showed about uh, Taiwan versus, you know, mainland China's interest in Taiwan? Absolutely. I think it's critical to first set the stage for why this region uh, is important for, for Americans. Uh, a peaceful and prosperous Indo-Pacific region is, is really critical to U.S. national security. Uh, it's home to more than half of the world's population, uh, two of the three largest economies, seven of the ten largest militaries, and five of the world's eight nuclear uh, weapons nations. So it's a very, very important region. And Taiwan is a vital partner of the United States. Um, economically speaking, half of the worldwide container fleet passes through uh, the Taiwan Strait. Three quarters of the world's largest ships pass through Taiwan Strait. And what, what gets talked about a lot, and rightfully so, is uh, the semiconductors that Taiwan produces. So about half-ish of all semiconductors, so anything with a light switch, your phones, your laptops, anything that's electronic uh, has a chip. About half of those are made in Taiwan, and 90% 90% of the world's most advanced chips are made in Taiwan. So that's sort of the, the setting the stage. It's it's a really uh, critical, critical region. And on January 13th, Taiwan held its elections for both the presidency uh, and its 113th seat uh, legislative yuan. So they have a unicameral legislature. And at the presidential level, the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party ticket, uh, won the elections. At the legislative level, no one party took the majority. Uh, so the Kuomintang, the KMT, uh, took the most number of seats. Uh, but neither party has a majority because a third uh, small but mighty uh, party called the TPP uh, took uh, a couple of seats. And so no party has the majority in the legislature, but the DPP won the presidential election. OK, so what does this mean for for Taiwan? I, mm -hmm. I I know that most of my awareness has been limited to, well, China's making some pretty strong statements about Taiwan and uh, the U.S. Right. is very concerned about those statements. But right. what exactly were the, the Taiwanese voting for? I, I mean, yeah, that's not. Go ahead. That's an excellent question, Brian. I think the DPP, um, at the risk of oversimplification, is sort of generally viewed uh, in the United States and, and our allies and partners viewed as the party that is more open to friendlier ties with the West. Uh, mainland China views William. So William Lai, President-elect William Lai, is viewed by the Chinese as someone 
um, who, 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 who supports, you know, Taiwanese independence. Uh, he's been labeled all kinds of names. Um, but I think what this really signals is that the, the Taiwanese people are putting their faith in a party that continues to demonstrate, uh, 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 res, uh, you know, resolve against Chinese coercion. And I think that's the key. Uh, the DPP won in 2020. They won in 2016. Um, President Tsai Ing-wen uh, is term limited, so therefore she can no longer run. Uh, but her, her vice president, William Lai, who is now the president-elect, I think will continue to carry that torch uh, for the next four years. So talk to me about, as a, as a democracy, as, as a yes. nation, how did their voters do? It's, you, you seem to, to paint a pretty, pretty complimentary picture of, of uh, people seem to be involved in turning out to vote. Yes. So one of the, 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 the cases that I make in my piece is that, you know, Taiwan is a thriving democracy. And, and part of what makes them such a thriving democracy is their elections. So they historically have very high turnout. Um, I will say that their turnout, I think it was around uh, the mid 70%, was a little bit lower than past years in Taiwan, but it exceeds the numbers in the US and many other uh, Western democracies. Um, and the way in which they hold their elections too are just very amazing, something that we couldn't dream of in the United States. So let me give you a couple of examples. And I recognize that Taiwan, uh, you know, with with much smaller population, some of what they do can't be replicated here. But for example, all the voting happens in person on one day. There's there's no mail-in ballots. Uh, people will show up uh, and they will vote in person. Election day is a holiday. So their election actually this year took place on a Saturday. But by making it a holiday, a federal holiday, it ensured uh, that people, you know, who were scheduled to work, people who had obligations, that they could go and vote. Um, and, and the final thing I'll say about their elections is that it's very transparent. Uh, so when the elections are, are, they're all hand ballots. And after the hand ballots are all collected uh, in view to the public, uh, you know, election officials will hold up each ballot, tabulate it uh, uh, on a board that's visible to anyone. Um, and actually, for a couple of days after the elections, uh, you know, there are, you know, viral videos on, on X and, and all kinds of social media uh, showing how the elections were conducted. And I think it just speaks to the fact that they are a beautiful, thriving democracy that basically every day is fighting off a coercion from, from mainland China. And we saw some of that in the lead up to the election as well. Wow. That's impressive. Now, what again? What's the population of Taiwan? I think it's about twenty-three million. You'd have to fact check me. Okay. No, that's that's uh, just just a ballpark figure works. But um, could this could this translate into uh, a model? I, I'm just I'm not saying the U.S. is having trouble <laughs> with elections, but but I will right. say a lot of people, myself included, have our doubts and maybe some questions as to how transparent the process is. Is there anything that that could be easily exported? To, to other countries or that they might emulate? That's a, that's a great question, Brian. And I think that the one thing I would say is that the way in which, the, so there, there's, it's very transparent as we discussed. And the nature of that transparency actually allows, I think, the public to understand uh, some of the coercion and misinformation campaigns uh, that that mainland China was was attempting to unleash in, in the lead up to the elections. And so, for example, um, you know, there were rumors circulated uh, that the DPP was working with the United States to develop biological weapon lands, uh, weapon labs, excuse me, uh, in Taiwan, which is obviously utter nonsense. There were rumors being, uh, you know, placed 
place that the the vice presidential candidate Bikim Shao, you know, was a U.S. citizen. There were rumors that William Lai had mistresses. You know, all <laughs> kinds of nonsense mis misinformation that that was coming uh, almost certainly uh, from. Uh, from mainland China. But the transparent nature of the elections allowed the people to recognize and, and see that these were just, you know, false uh, uh, misinformation campaigns. The last thing I'll say is, in fact, there was a journalist, um, you know, it's been publicly reported, we believe, at the behest of, of individuals with, with, with ties to the Chinese Communist Party was, you know, uh, promoting fake polling that showed that the KMT was perhaps, you know, uh, polling far better than they actually were. Uh, but all, despite all those disinformation campaigns, despite all that was going on, the Taiwanese people showed up uh, and they elected uh, uh, President-elect Lai. And I think we're going to continue to see a continuation of, of DPP policy moving forward. Peter, tell me about the fact that nobody has an, an absolute majority or at least a, a functional majority. Does that help to stabilize things, you know, keep basically one one party from ruling all the other parties? Yeah, so I, I'm going to have to give the lawyerly answer of it depends. And so I think in, <laughs> in, in this case, right, so the, the Taiwan People's Party, which is this third small party, uh, their candidate received 26.5% of the vote. So there is a sizable uh, uh, chunk of the population in Taiwan that didn't vote for the two large parties. Um, but, but as I said earlier, Brian, uh, no, the DPP and the KMT, neither side has a majority in the legislative yuan. And so I suspect that both parties are now thinking about ways in which they're going to have to work with the TPP uh, to, to, to get to get a, enough, you know, support, uh, enough majority support to advance their policy agendas. And I suspect that that's where we're going to see some uh, uh, some collaboration from 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 one, one side or the other. Well, I'll tell you, after reading this, I'm actually feeling a little bit encouraged. Just because the the election year here in the U.S. is uh, it's a hot mess, <laughs> and so yes, it's yes. it's good to see that in in other nations where the stakes are I think pretty high, China, Absolutely. Taiwan that's that's pretty high. It can still be done. I just I just Absolutely. hope that sanity will prevail here and that we can follow their example. Again, yes. we're we're talking with Peter Van Wingerden. Um, Peter, for people who wish to follow you or access you on social media, what's the best way to go about that? You can access me on Twitter at Van Wingerd and Pi. That's V-A-N-W-I-N-G-E-R-D-E-N and then P-I. Um, hope to see you there. Okay. Thanks again for your time. And uh, I look forward to following up. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk later this year and see how things Absolutely. are going. Thank you for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Welcome back. This is segment two of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome David Rand to the program. David, I believe this is your first time on uh, Moving Forward with Young Voices. Take just a second to tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. 
Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm a podcast host with Human Reaction, uh, and I do media and articles and stuff like that. I was the AFP state director with AFP Montana before, where I worked the Montana legislative session and did some work on housing reform. And that's what my article was about. It was the result of what was called the Montana Miracle. We passed a bunch of really great housing reform regulations that put more power into the hands of property owners to expand the supply of housing. But then the worst happened. The left took all those all that legislation to court and the judge put in a preliminary injunction suspending mm. all those new great rules. So that's kind of what the article is responding to. <laughs> and and it's a wonderful article. This is in uh, this is on the Mises.org website. Um, first of all, I love Mises just because they're it's it's a solid reality based, you know, uh, uh, think tank. But talk to me about Montana. I, when I think of Montana now, I live in Idaho, so I'm I'm used to living where there's a little bit of space. Montana should have ample space, but not when it comes to housing. Mm -hmm. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, a couple of reasons. So one, uh, in, you sympathize this for being out West. We're in a public land island. There's public land surrounding all over us. And in the public land, you can't build housing. So we have a, we can't have a sprawl thing. We kind of have islands. Two, we don't want to sprawl because we've got all this great farmland. We don't want to sprawl into it. Uh, three, we don't want to build up because that covers up the mountain views, especially in the places with the highest demand out West. Uh, and then Lastly, we can't build densely. I can't build any other direction. We can't have on the given lots more density uh, because of nimbyism. People who don't want to see more people move to our state. Wow. Okay, so I can understand, you know, as, as I read the article and, and was reading about the Montana miracle, that uh, some of these moves really basically free up the market to meet those demands. Um, can you give me a couple of examples of what, what were some of the things that were done to, to basically loosen the, the restrictions that were causing a shortage of housing? Sure. So things like minimum lot sizes, uh, that's like where you say, you know, if you're going to build a house, it has to be at least this big. Well, we're saying, well, we're going to lower that floor, right? Like a minimum wage. Minimum wage creates unemployment. Minimum lot sizes create just larger houses, right? So we're going to say, we're going to uh, lower that floor. We're going to allow for less zoning. Uh, so some zoning rules are like, it has to be a single family zone in this area, things like that. We had one that allowed you to more easily repurpose commercial zoned uh, properties into housing if you wanted to. Just things that just empowered the property owner and allowed people to do more with what they had to expand property. Oh, also ADUs, things like triplexes, things like that, just opening up the rules and reducing the regulations. I mean, I'm happy <laughs> about all of those. <laughs> now talk to me about, so why would people fight against that? Why was it necessary to go to a judge and get an injunction and basically kill the Montana miracle? Well, this is the big story of it, right? This is the civilizational story. There was a time, there was a time when we said, hey, if you're not part of the guild, you don't get to participate. If you want to compete and you're one of the plebs, you don't get to compete with the middle class because you got to get the certifications and do all the right rules. And then this miracle happened that created our the modern West. If you check out Deidre McCloskey's Bourgeois Virtues, she, she digs into exactly how that happened. What are the virtues that allowed that to happen? And when she did, she had it, it, it articulates that there was a period of time where we decided to say, hey, competition from that young person, competition from that low income person, that's not an injury to the people who currently have a stake in the current system. And that's what this judge did. He repealed that idea. He said, no, 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 if you build nearby me and it reduces the possible you know, amount that I could sell my house for, that is an injury to me, mm. violating a core concept, what makes the West what it is. Wow, 
I I don't even have words for how frustrating <laughs> that must be. And and look, it's it's true. You know, well, maybe that building will impact the judge's property, but if he's not actively selling it, then he hasn't suffered an injury, has he? And, and, and you don't have a right. You have a right to property. You don't have a right to the value that other people place on your property to a particular nominal, uh, it, you know, spontaneously ordered price that comes from the marketplace, from the consumer's evaluation of how much they value your property. You don't have a right to that. So and it, that, that definitely doesn't trump my right to build an ADU so that I can make more income on my property. Right. So that's that, uh, you know, order of liberty happens when we focus on property rights, not on trying to fix all the problems of the world, such as I need to be able to retire with what I feel like should be the, the right property value of my house. So I'm going to use government to keep you from using your property the way you see fit. That's the violation. And that's the core thing that if we walk away from, we walk away from who we are. Wow. David, talk to me about, uh, you mentioned in the article, you spoke in front of hundreds of of conservative grassroots activists from around the state. What was the what was the reception like? I mean, obviously, the, the conservative grassroots uh, folks re- recognize, hey, you know, step back, let the market uh, do its magic. Did, did you get pushback while you were out there on, on that uh, speaking tour? Really, there was two different groups of people. And yeah, I always got a mixed crowd. One group of people would always say, I'm here for the consistent freedom philosophy that enables free markets and prosperity. And we know that that is based on property rights. So they would say this is a property rights regime and it reduces regulations and allows people to do what they want on their own property. Live and let live. That's the Montana ethos. And they're very supportive. The other group, the other group would say, yes, but I have a stake in it and it is going to personally impact me. I have rental properties. I have X, Y, Z, and I want to see those prices go up. And that's that injury, you know, by I don't get the price that I want sort of ethos, and I'm willing to use government to do that. And really, that was just the distinguishing factors. Who is pursuing a consistent philosophy of liberty via property rights and who was out for number one and making sure that people couldn't build in ways that impacted them? And there were other concerns, too, like, oh, if people move here from California, we'll become more Democrat and stuff like that. But those those are largely were always superficial concerns. The big one was I don't want to see people not like me move to Montana. And that's why I oppose the apartments building going up over here or reducing these regulations. So what I advocate for is a return to those freedom philosophy first values that don't look at young people like we're a damage to you older people, right? You don't have assets. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That just means you haven't gotten the assets yet, you know? So let's not close the door for the next generation. Let's get them access to the American dream. And the best way to do that isn't by going forward. It's by going to the past. It's by remembering what made us great in the first place. And that is the institutions of property rights and freedom. I appreciate what what you were just addressing here, too, about the the intergenerational dynamic that's at play here. And look, I want to think I'm above it, but uh, gosh, it's almost like it's hardwired into us to be suspicious. New kids are getting together to reinvent the wheel. What what are we going to do about this? Troublemakers. But but I think you're on the right path, though. And and those who are wise enough to recognize, hey, this is the future. (laughs) These young people, they bring something that will, will lead to a better future as opposed to these are, you know, people we have to compete against, you know, for, for my stuff, my space, my view, my, my right. home's value. So That's right. I, I have to ask, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, Montana has seen a pretty huge influx of people, particularly over the last three years. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, sir. About 40,000. Any idea what the, the demographics are? Are they seeing more young people come to the state or are these typically more established people um, basically who can afford you know, the, the uh, inflated values of, of uh, real estate? You know, I couldn't tell you the demographics, but I do think, especially if you look at, for example, Steve Dane's election in 2020 for Senate, uh, the kind of interim elections in 2022, it definitely appears to be a a more right wing and ideologically consistent right than we've seen in Montana in the past. For years, since the 1910s, we've had a Democrat senator. And, you know, John Tester's coming up for this year. It's going to be a very tough year, probably because of that. So it's going to be a mixture. I, th- I suspect it's a little bit older. But I do think there's consistently people who are COVID refugees and people who want to escape the, you know, what's going on in the big cities. So I think they're going to lean more to the right regardless in regards to demographic. Wow. I I can certainly relate. I Three years ago, I moved to southern Idaho from uh, the Salt Lake City area and... Well, I've never looked back. (laughs) I don't think I would. Again, we're talking with David Rand. Um, David, for those who want to follow you or otherwise access you on social media, what's the best way to do that? You can check me out on Twitter at uh, Liberty underscore Rand. And then uh, check us out, Human Reaction Podcast. You just Google that. We got a web page, YouTube, Spotify, we're everywhere. Okay. I strongly recommend to folks who want to have a better take on things, the Mises Institute is remarkable. David, thanks so much for being my guest. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. This is segment three of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a new Young Voices contributor. Eloy Vera joins me from Argentina. Eloy, how are you today? Very well. Thank you, Brian. For, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, could you take just a moment and tell us about who you are and what you do? I am a freelance political journalist. I'm a law student uh, here in Argentina. Um, I have been working for a couple of years in several liberty-oriented organizations, Students for Liberty, uh, the Cato Institute, and now Young Voices. Very good. I... I guess Argentina's on a lot of people's minds right now simply because uh, your new president, Javier Millet, is really making the right kind of waves for a lot of folks around the world. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, we'll talk about your article about how uh, Javier Millet is the world's most misunderstood politico, but I'd love to get from your perspective as someone living in Argentina, what has his election meant? Has, Has it been a change in the way that business is done politically? Definitely. It signals for me a new era in Argentinian politics. It's a break away from uh, the usual categories that we used to speak about politics in. Uh, He really can't be mapped into any of the two major political sides. And that's why he managed to build a sort of cross-sectional coalition. He has appeal in the lower and the upper classes in uh, every region of the country. Really, I, I myself can understand it fully, but... Uh, I think the, that's what the article is about. Okay. That no one can quite pin him down. Now, generally, I have a pretty negative impression of politicians. I, I suspect I'm not alone in that. However, political leaders who actually have taken the time to study and comprehend economics, as well as the principles and practices of freedom, those are very rare individuals indeed. And it appears that Javier Mille is is one of those uh, people who has really understood. What can you tell us about his uh, his background intellectually, um, 
What what does he know? Uh, well, he's an economist. He um, became famous actually because he was first invited to talk about economics in various shows. Then he became sort of a media personality, a celebrity. He hosted talk shows. Um, his foray into politics is really quite recent, just a couple of years. Uh, it's really been remarkable how fast he has grown. And that's part of his appeal, that he's not seen as being a politician, either he or any of his political party, really. Yeah, he's kind of an anti-politician, at least for, from my perspective. He he doesn't uh, he doesn't walk or talk like a politician. In fact, I have to say one of the things you point out in your article was uh, I think he spoke the most bold, most boldly of anyone who spoke at the World Economic Forum uh, last month, when when he he basically called them out right to their faces. Yeah, he certainly uh, isn't afraid to show that he's a principled person that he doesn't necessarily speak the language of political correctness or pragmatism or moderation, but that doesn't mean he's a radical or extremist or a populist like uh, some international media seem to think. I actually think he's just uh, building a new sort of brand of principled pragmatism, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, in fact, I, I'm frankly wishing that the more um, political candidates and, and leaders would uh, would look to his example as to, as to what they might do. Um, so has life changed for, for the average Argentinian, or is, is there still an awful lot of work to do to, to basically shrink government's cost and influence in their lives? Definitely there's more work to do. Uh, for now, uh, Millet is... Uh, has been doing what can be done from his position uh, in the executive power, but Argentina is a constitutional republic. We have three powers. The judiciary has been cooperating so far. Uh, the Congress, not so much. Uh, Millet and his party, Liberty Moves Forward, is in a frank minority, less than a third of both uh, houses of Congress. So until his legislative agenda can be materialized, really, uh, we won't see... Uh, much change. You mentioned the word populist, and I think that is probably the single adjective that I have used, have heard used to describe Millet by most media outlets around the world. Well, he's a populist, and and you're you're saying that's not accurate. So, can, could I have you explain? Um, first of all, maybe for for those not familiar with populism, what what is a populist, and and why is Javier Millet not really the populist that that so many media portray him to be? Well, we in Latin America are very used to what populism is. Uh, it's basically the, a sort of political mechanism or methodology based on distinguishing between the true people, the, the real ones, the true spirit of the nation or whatever buzzword is used, um, saying that a popular leader represents the true people as opposed to some sort of cabal or race traders or national traders or whatever. And I understand that Millet, uh, Millet's rhetoric comes as antagonistic to some people, but I really don't think he can be uh, thought about that in that way. He has really shown respect for democratic institutions, for the rule of law, and for the international liberal order. He's aligned himself with uh, liberal democracies all around the world. But again, you can find exceptions to everything because I think people underestimate how much he moves by only Argentinian uh, perspectives and Argentinian national interests. So obviously you can map him into American or European categories or 
far or or far right or far left or Republican or Democrat. He's not American or European after all. Has Millet given any indication as to what uh, aspirations he may have beyond simply the presidency? Uh, if you're talking about re-election or maybe trying to stay over the allowed uh, limits of re-election like so many presidents have, uh, he's really not shown that so far. Uh, he seems quite focused uh, right now on finishing his first term, uh, on managing his agenda. Obviously, he has ambitions to establish a permanent presence for his party and his ideology for the libertarian side of the spectrum. But for the most part, he actually doesn't seem quite comfortable being in power. Like That's part of his appeal. He doesn't seem like a person who wants to rule over other persons. Which, in my opinion, is exactly the kind of person who, who should be in elected office. They should be reluctant, not uh, chomping at the bit. Oh, yes, yes, give me power, power. I want that power. Now, it was interesting, though, you mentioned in the article the, the Davos crowd isn't threatened by, by Melee. Why is that? Well, because, after all, uh, some of them might secretly agree with maybe we have gone too far with some of the... Um, DEI agenda, the, the sort of virtue signaling agenda, or uh, the sort of state intervention, the, the ways we have tried to combat like climate change or other things. And Millet, I, I repeat, really when you see him in person, uh, doesn't come about as someone who wants to tear down institutions or the international liberal order. Um, he's quite friendly to investors and quite friendly to uh, people who believe in democracy and liberal values. And I think the Davos crowd realized that. Very good. Now, you mentioned the term punk economist. And actually, I really like this because you you, you use uh, the the genre of punk music to, to help illustrate um, his, his popularity. Talk to me about what we mean by punk economist and then talk to me about uh, about um, punk music and how, how that relates. Well, actually, that's uh, a way... People refer to him uh, going pretty far back here in Argentina because he actually looks like a punk musician or a rock star. He's had goes with his leather jacket, the crazy, the crazy hair, uh, all of this image. Uh, but at the same time, he's an economist, which you sort of associate with uh, bold, academic, boring. Uh, it's quite a contradictory image, like punk was, because punk was a commercial, massive uh, genre of music that aimed at being popular, uh, mostly, but is that contradiction, that becoming popular, what allowed it to pass from being just a counterculture to the mainstream culture, and make it a sort of rebellious attitude, mainstream. I think that's the that summarizes the appeal of Millet, that he's bringing the counterculture into the mainstream in Argentina and in the world, apparently. I can only hope that uh, other um, elected leaders around the world might look to him for, for an example of <laughs> different ways that they could do things. But but it seems like the system is is very geared towards maintaining the status quo. Is he likely to encounter serious opposition on the world stage? Yeah, definitely. And we are seeing that already. But I think he uh, his main um, strength is that he's strategically being underestimated by his opposition. And that's how we got to be president. So who knows where this ends?
Yeah, if they, if they hadn't underestimated him, he wouldn't be there. No, it's, it's a wonderful article. Again, this is an International Policy Digest. And again, we are talking with Eloy Vera. And for people who want to follow you on social media or to read more of your writing, where would you send them? Uh, in X or Twitter, my handle is Eloy Vera Bell, at Eloy Vera Bell. I sometimes read in English, sometimes in Spanish, sometimes about Argentina or Latin America, sometimes about whatever comes to mind, uh, not even politics, maybe. So that's, that's where they can find me. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. We are welcoming Tyler Cochran aboard as a contributor. Tyler, welcome to the show. Take a minute and tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Brian, for having me on again. I, it, it's a pleasure. Always get to talk to you, and I appreciate it. So I'm a second-year law student at the University of Iowa, and then I'm also completing a master's in biblical languages program remotely out of Houston Christian University. Uh, I've just started uh, writing for Young Voices again recently, and I write on issues concerning religion, politics, and culture. Topics which no one could possibly misconstrue or have difficulty <laughs> with. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm looking at an article that, that you wrote for The Federalist about uh, the the ads that ran during the Super Bowl. He gets us. And I've seen a lot of people talking about these ads over the last uh, last week or so. For those who, yes, who, who didn't watch, tell me a little bit about these ads. What exactly did they consist of? Yeah, so this is these Super Bowl ads were a part of the He Gets Us billion-dollar ad campaign, and there were two commercials. One was a relatively shorter one that people didn't seem to have as many problems with. It was just a series of images of people in various life circumstances uh, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor, alluding obviously to Jesus' command to love thy neighbor in Matthew 22. The second commercial is really where people sort of got riled up about what he gets us was trying to convey. And that commercial seemed to depict Christians washing the feet of various people who many might consider to be the Christians ideological opponents. And then at the end of this uh, longer ad, uh, it read, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. And this is obviously a reference to John 13 in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Wow. And, and that's, uh, you're right, that is where the controversy began. And I know a lot of people had pointed out, okay, yes, you know, he, he was uh, very accommodating of, of his disciples, but there was also a component of repentance that uh, that yes. went into, you know, the people that, that Jesus encountered, where that wasn't something that really seemed to come through in in the commercial. Yeah, and that's ultimately my biggest problem. I know there there are some people that had issues with some of the images they used, but, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he became all things to all people, so I don't necessarily have a problem with using the language that people are most comfortable with as a way to get them in the door, but this outreach can't come at the sacrifice of the gospel message, which, like you said, does have at its core this idea of redemption that we are supposed to submit to Jesus and that that requires some redemption on our part, that he doesn't just get us, but he saves us. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I've seen people over the last few years talk about, well, you know, uh, they'll use, I was born this way. And it's like, well, did Jesus say that you must be born again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I, I can't deny who I really am. Well, did Jesus say, take up your cross and deny yourself? Well, well yeah, but it, it just seems like there's there's some really interesting and kind of radical interpretations of, of what Jesus might have meant. But conveniently, they all seem to lack the idea that a person can improve, can actually overcome because of him. And, and if I understand correctly, that was one of the big objections to that second ad of, of He Gets Us. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's definitely... It definitely fails to get across the idea that there is a sacrificial element to it, that because Jesus has been declared the Son of God in power, as Paul says, that we now live under his lordship, and that means that we have to submit to him in some ways. And that means sacrificing those parts of ourselves that we identify with more than we identify with Christ. And that can be difficult, I understand, and I understand that there are some people to whom that sacrifice may seem bigger than to others, that it may seem like they're having to give up a greater part of their identity than others are called to. But just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Oh, absolutely. I I like the warning that you offer as well, that you know what? This is how you get empty pews because it waters down the the message that uh, that Jesus brought, which which as you just said, it's it, yes, there's there's a great deal of divine love, and 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 God loves us, you know, warts and all, but He also calls on us to to become more, to be become better, to become perfect in Him. Yeah, yeah, and it's something that Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, talks about that love is willing the good of the other. It's not just an affirmation of people where they're at. And I I understand the inclination to want to get as many people into churches as possible. And so the idea behind things like the He Gets Us ad might be by being accommodating and being more tolerant of, of people that they are more likely to come. But what they don't understand is that if the church isn't offering them anything that the culture isn't, why would they come? If you're just going to affirm them in sort of their subjectively defined identity, they can get that everywhere else. And Very true. Apart from it being a watering down of the gospel, it also just doesn't work. Now, you actually spell out some of the um, declines in church attendance that are taking place. Let's let's flesh that out a little bit. For those wondering, well, how is the church doing You know, these days? It's uh, it's looking a little unhealthy in, in some respects. Yeah, so in 2019, uh, it was the first year that we saw more churches close than open. And that was sort of a climactic moment in this declining church attendance that had been going on for many decades. And we've seen it especially affect uh, denominations uh, that belong to the so-called Seven Sisters of Mainline Protestantism, losing an average of 25% of their membership over the last two decades. Wow. And it's affected, I'm not just trying to single them out, it's affected most denominations, but there are a couple of the more traditional, tr- either traditional Christian sects or those who adhere to more traditional views on issues that 
you know, the progressive culture sort of fights against like Pentecostalism and traditional Latin mass Catholicism have actually experienced growth in recent years. And I don't think it's a surprise that those two that maybe demand more of their parishioners are finding more success than those that really just want you to show up on Sunday, but don't really seem to care how you live your life the other six days of the week. Interesting. Now, one of the things you point out, I thought this was an absolutely terrific line in your article, was that the gospel is offensive to the sensibilities of the world. Would you mind expanding on that? Yeah, of course. So Jesus in John 15 actually says that, basically tells his followers that the world is going to hate you and that we are not supposed to find comfort in the things of the world, but that we're supposed to find comfort in him. And so that is, that can be a difficult message to try and get across and sell people on, but that is what we have to offer, that we offer a radical call to repentance and perfection in Christ. And that that is, there is more joy and love in him than anything you can find in the world. And so it's offensive to the world insofar as it sort of goes against everything that the culture stands for. But at the same time, it fulfills all the things that people who are in the culture actually want to have. And it just achieves them more perfectly than uh, anything else could. I remember a religious leader some years ago making the comment that the more a person um, changes their life to become closer to Christ, the more likely they're going to start having public relations problems. <laughs> that is, yeah. That sounded very true. You say in your article, look, instead of changing Christ to reflect our culture, we need to challenge the culture to reflect him. We, we've only got about a minute or so left, but talk to me about some of the ways that uh, that Christians can challenge the culture without uh, being unchristian. Yeah, so that the best way to do that is, first of all, we don't condemn people. That's not our that's not our, our duty as Christians. It is to call them into a loving relationship with Christ. So that just means, you know, speaking truth whenever the opportunity arises, uh, obviously preaching the gospel message, but also loving our neighbor. And that is something that I do appreciate that he gets us, uh, people try to get across is that Christianity is about love. It just also seems to miss the idea that love and its relation to willing the good for the other requires that repentance. So just continuing to love people by telling them, you know, these are the things God has for you your life will be better if you change these things about you saying it in a loving way, but definitely speaking truth to the way they're living their life and how it's falling short of what God wants for them. Beautifully stated. And that's, that's not an easy topic to take on, but I think you did it uh, very well. Again, we're talking with Tyler Cochran. He is a young voices contributor as well as a law student at university of Iowa. Tyler, for people who would like to follow your writing and follow you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at TylerCochran54. I post all my articles on there and all my media hits. So uh, this will be on there later, I'm sure, and all my articles that I've written in the past are on there as well. Okay, thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it.